Thanks for joining today as I'll be navigating the noise with Matt Hogan, CIO of Bitwise Asset Management. In this session, we'll discuss the importance of viewing crypto not as a currency, but as a future savings technology. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. And now on to today's episode. Thanks a lot for joining today. I've got Matt Hogan from Bitwise Asset Management. He's the CIO and um, happy to have Matt on and, and learn a little bit about what they're doing, talk about closing that gap um, between traditional wealth management, asset management, and uh, the crypto space. So Matt, why don't you uh, give us a little background, uh, a little bit about you, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Kane. You know, this is, uh, I come from a traditional finance background. So exactly what you're talking about is the journey that I ran as well. And now I help other financial advisors and others uh, do as well. So I came from an ETF background. Uh, I was the CEO of a company called ETF.com, helped build that business up from nothing to a 70-person organization, eventually sold that business, and then looked around for the next great thing to be involved in, and that was, to me, clearly crypto. And so I joined a company called Bitwise Asset Management in early 2018. Bitwise is a specialist crypto asset manager. We created the first crypto index fund. Uh, our role in the world is to help financial advisors allocate into the crypto space. And so for the past three years, most of what I've done is talk to people from traditional finance about what crypto is, what it isn't, why it's interesting, why it's not crazy, what the risks are, answering those sort of questions. Awesome. So we'll touch on a lot of that. So you and I both have, uh, we've had a number of conversations over the last couple of years. Um, always appreciative of your time and, and just hearing more about what's going on in the space and how that um, hopefully we can connect people on my side of the fence and wealth management and traditional space. So um, Bitwise done a great job uh, kind of moving the ball forward. You guys really grown the team, um, gathered a, a great amount of assets here in the last year uh, over a short period of time. Um, as you've kind of navigated that path, what's been maybe the biggest resistance or pushback from wealth managers or, you know, early on in the private fund side, new clients that come with interest, but just aren't ready to dive in. Yeah. Oh, that come with interest. You know, I'll say a lot of people don't come with interest. Some people approach this crypto space with something that looks like willful ignorance, or they just don't want to deal with it. Um, or they think it's, you know, fake internet unicorn money that fell from the sky. So, uh, the first biggest challenge is getting people to stop thinking of it that way and actually deal with it and approach it as a sort of once in a generation technological breakthrough that, that lets money move over the internet. And that's been the biggest challenge, just getting people to pause in their busy days and take more than 30 seconds to think about crypto. You know, that's that's really it. And I think it's a, a question of reframing. I think when most people hear about crypto, they really do think of it. They think of like some guy who we don't know, right? Satoshi Nakamoto created this idea of an internet currency. They think it just popped into his head and he created like an Excel spreadsheet. And now it's worth a trillion dollars. And that doesn't make any sense. And so getting them to stop, pause, realize that it was a computer science 
breakthrough that it enabled new things that allows money to move on the internet, you know, takes some time. It takes not five minutes, it takes half an hour even to begin that conversation. So getting people to stop and pay attention long enough to have that conversation has been the biggest challenge, but we've made real progress. We now have hundreds of RAs working with us and allocating crypto. Uh, and I think people are more and more and more open to that conversation. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really big point there. Um, crypto is not something, regardless of which coin you kind of pledge allegiance to. Um, it's not something that you can spend five minutes, an hour, 10 minutes. It's kind of five, 10 hours a week at some point. Uh, you know, maybe um, I know my own path early on, you see it and it's like, oh, this is just funny internet nerd money, never going to go anywhere. You just kind of take the traditional wealth management perspective or, or uh, traditional banking perspective and say, hey, well, we already have money. Um, and then you come back to it six months, a year later, like, wow, this thing's still here. You know, the famous uh, Bitcoin's not dead kind of memes. Um, and it sticks around over the years. So that's a really good point. Um, it's not a five minute thing. It's not a once in a week thing. Um, and, and so once you get past that, have you noticed any common light bulbs or aha moments for uh you know, people that have interest in the space, but just haven't quite put in the time yet. Is there, is there a common theme that, that once they hit this certain topic, subject, or piece that they're like, oh, now I get it. It's not just money, it's transmission of value. That's exactly right. To me, I'm a first principles kind of thinker. So to me, the, the times that I most frequently connect with people on that is when I get them to pause and think about what a blockchain is why it's interesting and what new features it allows. People throw around terms like blockchain and they get excited about the wrong things. Like they talk about, oh, it's an immutable ledger. Mm -hmm. Stone tablets were an immutable ledger. That's actually not that big of an advance. When you get them to think about, you know, what a blockchain really is, you know, it's the, it's the first database that's available everywhere in the world that no single party controls. We didn't have a way to do that before the Bitcoin blockchain. Now we do. And that allows us to do amazing things like move a billion dollars in a few minutes for virtually no fees. And once you get people to understand that it's this fundamental technological breakthrough, uh, you can start to, to open the door crack. One example I use a lot is I talk about wiring money because most people have had an experience wiring money and it's a terrible customer experience. Right. Uh, you know, if I wanted to wire money to London today uh, and it's Thursday or Friday, the earliest it can get there is like Monday or Tuesday. Uh, and I have to go to a bank to do it. And the fee is two to four percent. And that's ridiculous. Money is the slowest moving thing in the world. And I think people have that experience with wiring money. So one thing that sometimes gets people to stop and think is I tell them, well, the other day on the Bitcoin blockchain, someone moved. $500 million and it's settled in 10 minutes and the fee was 27 cents. How can you have Bank of America, Wells Fargo, choose your bank, the largest banks in the world with offices around the country and hundreds of thousands of employees. And they take two business days to move $10,000 abroad. And on the other hand, you have this software network with no employees, no offices, no management, no CEO, and it can move a billion dollars in 10 minutes. And that sort of visceral example, I think, clicks for people because they've had that experience of, you know, wow, 
the current financial system is really slow. Uh, uh, I think people don't understand how slow it is. It's like the only thing in our lives that hasn't caught up with the internet. I mean, stocks settle in two days. What is that, right? I can have a free video conference with someone in Kuala Lumpur. I can order anything from Amazon and it'll get here in a few hours and stocks settle in two business days. It's ridiculous. So I try to use those visceral examples to get people to reflect on the fact that the legacy financial system in its current state is sort of vaguely absurd in how slow it is. And then talk about how blockchain and crypto solves that problem. And sometimes that opens the door a crack. And, and I love that. I, I refer to it a lot of times as banking is one of the last three dinosaurs. Um, and, and now that, um, and there, there's always been infrastructure and code and whatnot in banking, but now that we're actually bringing it up to speed with APIs and, and constant connectivity and instantaneous settlement, um, I think it just improves everybody's lives um, from, from the point you made with wires and the time to settle. You know, if you, if you dig in, you, you understand it because balance sheets between institutions have to match and, and all that, but that's largely just because they've not upgraded technology in 50 years, 30 years, whatever it may be. And to me, this is like you said, a generational you know, savings technology because it allows us to get the thing that we touch the most, which is our money, uh, up to speed with the way we live and, and call an Uber or Instacart or DoorDash or the way we watch TV or listen to podcasts. You know, it's just moving... That, that's the thing for me, and I kind of want to you know, jump ahead a little bit, ask you, um, do you think some of that disconnect and the fear exists because, you know, this time the digitization is focused on money, and that has such a meaningful impact on people, whereas in other aspects of our life is like, oh, this is just a technology that made some part of my life simple, but it didn't always directly impact my wallet. It's a beautiful question, and I'm going to answer it. Before I do, it is the case that early on in the internet, there was a lot of hesitancy, a lot of doubt. People didn't know what it would do, right? People didn't trust Wikipedia. What a ridiculous idea. People editing like an encyclopedia. It's never going to work. People didn't, you know, Newsweek called the internet a cesspool that will never amount to anything. So it's, it's not that uncommon for people to be uncomfortable with these new digital technologies, right? People were very skeptical of Facebook ads in the early days. I'm spending money on what? Like, where does it go? I can't see it. It's not a billboard. It's not in print. It can't be a real thing. So this sort of skepticism is fairly normal for disruptive technologies as things move out of the physical world into the digital world. I do think it's amplified in money for two reasons. One, as you talk about, it's a pocketbook issue, right? So it's hit, it hits people in their, in their hearts, uh, in their wallets and with their family. And that can be very concerning. And there is risk, right? The flip side of instantaneous settlement is more risk, right? Just like carrying around $1,000 in cash is riskier than carrying around a debit card. It's the same idea. Um, so there's, there's that risk. And it's also more regulated, right? There is more regulation around finance and money than there was around news. Uh, and so you have to overcome, navigate, negotiate with that regulatory burden as well. So maybe it's, maybe it's not that surprising that it's one of the last areas that the internet has disrupted fundamentally. 
but it's also one of the largest addressable markets that the internet has ever tackled. So you have those two things going, going side by side. For you, what was kind of the moment where, you know, if it was several years ago when you were CEO at ETF.com or whether it was six months into your journey at Bitwise, what was that moment where it just all kind of clicked and the narrative became easier to create and tell and, and, and look at? Yeah, it was sort of two phases. So for one, I did have someone who sort of grabbed me by my shirt collars, shook me and said, Matt, you have to pay attention to this. Uh, for me, uh, that was a famous ETF lawyer named Kathleen Moriarty, actually the lawyer on the first ETF. And she was the lawyer for the Winklevoss twins in their initial ETF application for a Bitcoin ETF. And she's a good friend. And she said, Matt, this is a lot more serious than anyone is paying attention to. And so that's when I started to study and think about it. And that was in 2013. So she was very early. And so I owe a lot to her to, 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 to having cracked open my mind to consider this. Um, the, the, the second breakthrough really occurred actually probably after I joined Bitwise as I developed a fairly deep understanding of the underlying technology and came to realize just how much efficiency and speed it can introduce into the system. I had anecdotal understandings beforehand. I knew what a blockchain is. I knew you could move money quickly, but I hadn't fully understood the sort of paradigm shift of, of settlement and efficiency and programmability until I really spent time and understood the plumbing. Um, Honestly, it was very similar to my early days of ETFs. If you remember in the early days of ETFs, people were very skeptical of them. Uh, but I remember sitting down and diagramming how ETFs work uh, and understanding the efficiency, the tax efficiency and liquidity efficiency that was going to follow. Uh, and it sort of felt like a manifest destiny that ETFs would take over the asset management world. Uh, and I feel that same sort of manifest destiny around crypto and public blockchains and finance. Uh, once I really understood the technology and understood how much efficiency, how much it can lower costs, how much it in can increase inclusion, how much programmability it offered into the monetary world, um, it seemed inevitable. You know, it's going to be a bouncy path and a volatile path to get there. Uh, but I have, I, have, I have very little doubt that we will get there. Um, and every day we see new story stories, data points, and milestones that suggest we're marching in that direction. Yeah, and that's, in a lot of ways, a lot of the pushback that I hear from, whether it be institutions, individuals, uh, companies, whatever it may be, advisors, is that volatility uh, question. But if you look historically, any new asset class or any new asset in general is usually very uh, volatile. Because it's early, there's not there's a lot of misunderstandings. There's not even really, in a lot of cases, a known application uh, or or one that's broadly used. And so um, you've got you know the volatility issue, the focus on price and on money. That's sort of an issue. But then there's all of these news and narratives and memes and everything that goes on on the internet or or news headlines, um, and it's twenty four seven. And uh, it's minute to minute. Is that um, the challenges to investors and advisors? Is just how do I how do I start number one, and then how do I keep up? There's just so much. <laughs> it's so hard. Uh, it's so hard. And also for most advisors, 
Uh, I think crypto is an important part for them to consider in their portfolios. But for most advisors, even if they're allocating, it's going to be a small percentage of their portfolio. Mm -hmm. So how do I keep up with something so disruptive, changing so fast, with so much news flow for an allocation that's maybe one, two, three, five percent of my portfolio? It's really, uh, it's really difficult. I, I think there are two phases. One. You have to get this sort of fundamental core understanding of what it is. And it's worth investing in that core understanding to transform it from this, you know, fake internet money to this technology that moves money onto the internet. And once you, once you build that understanding, a lot of the news flow is really easy to contextualize. Are we moving? Uh, is it, is it moving us in a positive direction towards what money can do on the internet? Good. If it's not, than bad. But the other thing is most people are going to partner out with a trusted partner. Uh, you know, people talk about what Bitwise does from an outside perspective. What we do is very simple. We create index funds, right? There's no simpler uh, tool for accessing the market than an index fund. But behind the surface, you know, we have a whole team of, of 30 people that are following this 24-7, 365. We're meeting at night when new regulatory developments, we're uh, evaluating custodians, uh, and I think, I think a lot of people, whether they turn to Bitwise or another provider, are going to want someone whose hand is on the tiller monitoring that news on a daily basis so they don't, they don't have to. Uh, right. And, and that's something we go over with with clients. Um, you know, we invest their assets for them. We do a lot more than that. We help them with balance sheets and cash flow and all, all the kind of stuff that um, maybe is ancillary to, quote unquote, the investment world. Um, but one of the things that we say, and, and a lot of people get focused on their investments, but if you're a real estate agent or, you know, you operate and run a construction company or you manage a family business, a lot of times, you know, your best bet is to focus on that business and <laughs> let somebody else focus on the news headlines related to your portfolio or what's going on in the economy, because you just, there's just not enough hours to do both and, and investing um, investing successfully, we can we can all get lucky, but it's it's a full time job. You guys have a great tool uh, for advisors for clients uh, on your website, uh, bitwiseassetmanagement.com, um, where anyone interested can throw um, assets, their portfolio or whatever, and then set an allocation to crypto. Um, has that been really helpful? What what kind of spurred that? It's been hugely helpful. Uh, what spurred that is people have a, a generalized misunderstanding of Bitcoin and crypto and its role in a portfolio. And that misunderstanding is driven by the fact that in isolation, it's extremely volatile. And so people think if I put this into a portfolio, it's going to make my portfolio exceptionally volatile. But the thing about crypto that's different from, say, high octane tech stocks is that it's not correlated with the broader market. It, over short periods of time, it can be, but over long periods of time, it tends to uh, not move uh, in lockstep with the market. If the market goes up, crypto may go up, it may go down, it may go sideways. If the market goes down, the equity market, crypto may go up, may go down, may go sideways. And the reason we built that tool is one thing it demonstrates is that if you add a small allocation of crypto to an otherwise diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, and you rebalance it, because you're managing it like a professional asset manager would, it can have, at least historically, a very positive impact on that portfolio, substantially increasing the returns without increasing the risk 
very much. Now, the important pieces there are it has to be the right size, can't be 50% of your portfolio. Our studies show again, you know, one to five is sort of a, a magic range for many people. And you have to rebalance, which is tough for people. That means selling if it goes up a lot and buying if it goes down a lot. Um, that's one of the reasons, you know, working with an advisor is so helpful for people in crypto, because those are very hard things to do. It's hard to fight the feeling in your gut. But if you do that, at least historically, it's had an enormous impact, uh, enormous positive impact on portfolios. And so we built that tool to show people that, that once you add crypto into a portfolio, it's different than looking at it in isolation. And so I'll, uh, on top of that, I'll throw out um, a buzzword fiduciary. Okay. So our industry, I remember when I first got in the business, um, started working uh, with a guy and, and we were in a wirehouse and first things first was that clients are always right. And you always do what the clients want. And, and we don't push products on people. Right. And so that's truly being a fiduciary as you survey the land. Uh, what are the best options to, you know, build wealth, protect wealth and grow uh, clients' money over time. Um, do you think for the last couple of years, advisors for the most part have ignored traditional space has ignored it? Do you think that that's, um, if we talk about fiduciary, is that something that now maybe is changing because there is that obligation that this asset, if it's an asset class, has been around long enough that in some form or fashion, being a fiduciary means you have to start looking at it? You have to look at it. I totally agree. You don't have to invest in it. Of course, that's an individual decision. But uh, if Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Wells Fargo and Morgan Stanley and UBS and others are all either allowing their clients to allocate, recommending their clients allocate or considering it, you have a duty to evaluate it and determine what you think. The other thing I would add is there's a high probability that your clients are doing it already on their own. Uh, and if that's true, there's a high probability that they're suffering from, you know, traditional behavioral uh, finance challenges when you're dealing with a volatile asset. And they're going to be better off if you incorporate that piece that's existing outside the core portfolio into the asset allocation mix. So I do think it's too, it's, it's, it's beyond the point where you can ignore. This is a, you know, a trillion dollar asset class that most uh, many institutions are allocating to. Uh, that most wirehouses and, and investment banks are considering, you own duty to your clients to consider it. Uh, and, and that other piece that they're probably already doing it themselves and maybe you can help them do it better, I think is important as well. And, and on that note, if, if clients, um, and we see it, uh, you hear it, uh, you talk to people, you talk to advisors, you talk to clients, you talk to friends, family, in some form or fashion, there's a lot um, of the market that's doing it one way or another. Uh, whether it's through funds like like you guys with the BITW or you know your competitors GBTC wh whatever it might be and and they're more comfortable doing it in their brokerage account um, or they now Coinbase Gemini Kraken it's fairly easy enough that you know individuals are comfortable enough doing it themselves so if that's the case one thing I always like to talk about is let's look at it more as a technology and forget about if we can just remove the word currency from it. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to the early nineties and the disruption of the internet, and this is just 
an evolution of the internet with more security and connectivity, would it help uh, individuals better understand if they viewed it more as you know, technology projects or internet projects rather than currency? 100%. It's both more accurate and more intuitive and opens their minds to the possibility. I mean, if you ask people, do you want to invest in a you know, internet currency that some guy dreamed up, they're all going to say no. Do you want to invest in a technology that lets money move over the internet? Well, that sounds interesting. Tell me more about it. And you can evaluate these things on traditional software metrics. I mean, you can evaluate how many people are using them, how many developers are working on them, what progress they're making, what is the level of transaction activity, uh, what is the efficiency of the network. You can evaluate them like you can other software protocols. And I think it's, um, I think it's a, I think that's a beautiful reframing, and that's that is how people should be thinking about it. They're they're investing in technologies and software that allows money to move on the internet. They're not investing in a cryptocurrency. That's kind of the original sin of crypto. Uh, it was labeled a cryptocurrency, and uh, crypto is a scary word, and it's not really a currency in the same sense. So that was a bad bad first step. But I, I love how you reframe it. No redos there. Um, <laughs> Once it's in the wild of the internet, it, it is what it is. Um, and I think on one of you guys' last webinars, you guys do a bunch of those. Um, so for education purposes, that's an easy way to get caught up. Um, you guys kind of touched on that. We Let's just say there's base layers with Bitcoin, Ethereum, maybe a couple others, whatever, whatever your choice. Um, but you guys did a really good job of framing that, that we're just in the coming through the app stage. Mm-hmm. And, and those things are starting to be built on top of these base layers, much like, um, you know, back in the late 90s, it was applications instead of apps. So um, does, does that sometimes help? It helps a lot. Yeah. If you can reframe, if you remember back to the late 90s, we talked a lot about investing in inf- internet infrastructure companies versus investing in internet companies. And those were two valid themes, right? You could buy JDS Uniphase or you could buy, you know, uh, Google or Yahoo. And I think that's exactly equivalent here. You have, you have uh, crypto networks like Ethereum, which are really building the internet of finance uh, and are this base layer on which other applications can exist. And then more recently, you have a development of those applications, things like Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange, or Aave, which is a decentralized lending program. Those are built on top of Ethereum. And different people will find different things appealing. Some people want to invest in sort of the the rails, the picks and shovels, the, the, the underlying infrastructure. Some people are more comfortable with these apps which look a lot more like companies, right? They have revenues, they have, uh, they have cash flow, uh, they have users, they have metrics. So I think both are valid. And we're just at that point where the rails are built out enough and understood enough that you're starting to get these apps, which are more tangible, easier for people to understand. Uh, and that space is going to explode uh, in, in, in growth and excitement and understanding over the next year or two. And from the infrastructure piece, recently I was I was going through something and and it hit me that our with with DeFi specifically, you guys have a DeFi fund uh, as well as private, but um, it seems to me where we could possibly look back to would be the the nineteen seventies when derivatives and options markets were built out, or 
you know, with the decentralized exchanges, is there really that much difference between 1950s when stock exchanges were going electronic and becoming <laughs> global things? Like, do you refer to certain periods uh, in history or have you looked at it that way? I, I absolutely love that. And, and I have thought a little bit about that. I love that analogy. It makes, it makes exact sense to me, the comparison when stock exchanges went electronic, because I remember that. And if you remember the level of skepticism there, right? Oh, it'll never work. You need people on the floor. Someone needs to be manning the store. You can never do upstairs trading. It's never going to happen. And now you walk on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and it's a TV set. Um, because when you have a more efficient technology, particularly trading and liquidity will migrate to that uh, as fast as, as it can. And I see some of those same similarities today. You have centralized crypto exchanges like Coinbase uh, and you have decentralized exchanges like Uniswap, and people are hugely skeptical of these decentralized exchanges. How can you have this software platform that does automated liquidity from you know thousands of liquidity pools that will never work? Uh, it sounds an awful lot like the floor traders saying it will never work as well. Ultimately, money and liquidity flows to the most efficient process, uh, and software and automation can bring real efficiencies to things like trading. So. I think that's a great analogy. Uh, I don't think Coinbase is going away. I think it's a great company. It's got a great UX. It's a good onboarding for traditional investors into the crypto space. But I think anyone who's skeptical that that can't migrate into a software first uh, decentralized premise, I think history just suggests that that's wrong. That's not what's happened over the last 50 years. Every time trading has gotten more electronic, volume has migrated in that direction. And I think this is just the next step. Yeah, there's two things there. Um, one, humans evolve up and to the right. You know, that doesn't mean there aren't big dips in between, but we evolve and, and technology helps us do that. Um, as technology continues to take over and we have less and less jobs, it, it seems to me this technology can allow us other ways to get paid or have ownership of, of the data that we might own that somebody might want. Um, it, and it also allows us to, to reskill people on, in different economies. Whereas we don't really like sitting at desk jobs, pushing paper. Well, now these connections can. I, I fully believe in that. I, you know, I think technological disruption destroys certain jobs and mostly creates better paying and, and higher jobs. Uh, and I have just a huge degree of confidence in, in human creativity to use these technologies to do more interesting things. I mean, one way to think about crypto, just to extend that thought, is it allows us to do existing things that we do in finance faster. We talked about sending money. We've talked about trading. You can talk about lending. But it also allows us to do things we haven't even thought of or practically done before, right? So things like micropayments it allows us to do uh things like non-custodial arbitrage it allows us to do which could dramatically improve how markets function around the world it could eliminate many arbitrage gaps so so there are two phases to this i think people get stuck on that first phase how does it make the existing system better and faster and cheaper but there's a whole new thing is what else we can do and you can make an analogy back to uh, the internet, one way to think of the internet in the early days was like taking the New York Times and putting it online. Uh, but then you can have comments 
and then people can do videos and then they can discuss it on social and then you know people can build their own new york times i mean that's that's the kind of you know next evolution window that opens up and i think i think people are not even considering what that next evolution window is uh, of the things we can do once we once we move money onto the internet they may be more than what we've done with money historically yeah and I, I like that because it shows to there is that future and i don't even think we've really scratched the surface yet and um you know if you look at markets over time when you uh, just look at 2000 you know instacart today is awesome it was called webvan <laughs> and, and, you know, there's all these, Amazon was some version of pets.com or, you know, there are all these great ideas that came out late nineties, but the tech crash allowed those that were truly interested in it and not just there for the money to keep building. And it feels like to me, and, and maybe you have an opinion, these last two years, we're just scratching the surface of that usable act applications that are just super early in generating revenues. Super early. I completely agree with that. Um, I think we are just scratching the surface. I think it's, you know, it's, it's the earliest days of the internet. Um, but what you're looking for, you know, as an investor, what you look for there, you're, you're looking for that early product market fit. You're looking for that point of differentiation. Uh, you're looking for technologies that do things that, that you couldn't do in the past. Uh, and as long as that's a very real breakthrough, whether you know how you get from here to there can be extremely volatile people should expect that um but the fact that you can do it uh you know eventually comes true even amazon right didn't the stock draw down 90 percent or so yeah uh, the 2000 bubble uh but as mark yusko said you know what's the best time to sell amazon answer has been never right ultimately that that efficiency came through and i think you could even back up pre-crypto if you think about fintech Fintech has been this giant promise since the early 80s. It's going to revolutionize finance. My bank account looks an awful lot like it did in 1980, um, right? And I think crypto may be that technology that allows Fintech to fulfill, you know, the, what it always promised, which was this beautiful future of software and automation and efficiency. And it was just basically impossible for that to be meaningful until you had crypto. You could put a nice UX on it. You could move it online. But because the underlying plumbing was so slow, you couldn't really make good on the promise of fintech. I think crypto DeFi is what's going to enable us to make promise, make good on the on the promise of uh, fintech. So I think it's part of like a, a 30 year story. Yeah, that and that's a good point, because um, fintech, I mean, th there's been some innovation, but like you said, mostly it's just UX, UI type stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree with you there on DeFi if I'm looking at it and I'm saying, what is the advantage? It feels like what we already know, which is derivatives options. You know, most of the terminology used in crypto in general is just some other term for forward swaps, futures, all those complex things. And now they've just removed the people and taken what we learned from APIs and said, well, now I don't need a hundred traders. I just need one API that connects everything. Um, you know, you've got oracles as your data source instead of centralized databases. You could go down the rabbit hole and talk about which ones are centralized, which ones aren't. But the general idea is there's a connectivity to move value. And as bad as the world is in terms of if you read the headlines, what's going on in the last couple of years, just globally, is, is this not really the bull market that kind of 
pushes you forward. Yeah. If you I, look at hundred years of the markets. Hundred percent agree. Hundred percent agree. It has it. It has all that characteristic of it. I mean, it has you know huge venture capital investment, a lot of experimentation, a lot of smart people moving into the space. Um, and you know, what do you expect from that? You expect excesses. You expect failure. Uh, but in the end, you expect progress. And I, I think that's what we're seeing. And, and that's one thing. If you break out your crystal ball here and say, okay, we're five or 10 years down the road, do you have any expectations or just uh, personal opinions on how we get to the other side, get from primarily just a trading thing and, and move truly to a di digital asset um, that, that adds more value? Do you have an opinion? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to happen faster than people think. So um, I think you're going to see it. Well, you're already like, I would argue that Bitcoin's already established itself as, as digital gold. I think you're seeing the earliest indications of, of DeFi and you're seeing people experiment with how it can cross the blood brain barrier into the physical world uh, and how we can, you know, tokenize real world assets and then move them into a DeFi setting. And then you can do all these wonderful things. So uh, I actually think the financial system 10 years from now is going to look a lot different than it looks today. Um, yeah, I think the catalyst will be continued investment development activity around DeFi. I think the launch of central bank digital currencies could be a big catalyst that get people used to this idea of blockchain enabled currencies uh, that empower a lot of, you know, sort of payment type apps. My crystal ball is pretty bright. If you, if you go back and you look at the share of the economy that the financial sector has eaten up over time. Uh, it's gone straight up for 80 years. And that's a sign that it needs new technology and development to make it more efficient and more inclusive. And I think, I think DeFi will do that. So I think, I do think the market will look very different in five or 10 years. I think people, people underestimate it. 10 years ago, Bitcoin was trading for a few pennies. Uh, and today it's a trillion dollar asset. I think we can underestimate how much things can change in 10 years. That's awesome. And one thing I think that, um, I think it was last summer that I was on a call with, with you guys or a webinar or something, and you had put out a great analogy of uh, how Venmo, in, in very simple first principles, is basically kind of like crypto, if you will. Um, if you recall that, is that something you could talk about as maybe getting people over the hurdle of what is this magic money on the internet? I think it's the single greatest way to get people to understand what blockchain is. Uh, and so, so here's what I, what I tell people. We all use Venmo. It's one of the most popular finance apps in the world. We use it to pay our babysitters, to split bills at dinner. The whole reason it exists, the reason it's on 200 million phones, is it allows me to send money to you and you get it instantaneously, easily. That's clearly a sign that that is a service people want. And so why is Venmo fast and banks are slow? And the answer is simple. It's just a database architecture issue. Venmo is a walled garden. Inside Venmo, I can only send money to you. Uh, Venmo controls every transaction. So if I say I wanna send you $100, Venmo can look, it sees I have $100, it knows I haven't sent it to anyone else, and it can transfer to you as fast as you can change one line in an Excel document. The reason banks are slow is if I send you a check and you deposit it at your bank, your bank has to talk to my bank and make sure I'm good for that check, that I haven't written 10 checks on the same account, that my account's in good standing, that I have the money I said I had. 
And that process takes multiple days. In other words, one database is fast, a thousand databases is slow. All of blockchain is the Bitcoin blockchain. It was the first database that was available everywhere that everyone could see, that everyone could verify the state of, but which no single party controls. So it's like, it's like Venmo meets the internet. It's Venmo, but open to everyone and without one company that you have to trust to hold your money, right? That's why we don't send a billion dollars on Venmo. You're not gonna trust Venmo to hold it. So it's one database available everywhere and uh, that no single party controls. And that's a big breakthrough. That means we can send a billion dollars to anyone around the world as fast as you can send a hundred dollars over Venmo. Uh, and it means money moves onto the internet. It means we create digital property rights. It means we can program money. That's it. So if you want to think of what a blockchain is, just think of like Venmo meets the internet and that's the advance. Um, and it's as simple as that. It's a database problem. That's why the legacy financial system will never keep up. It doesn't matter how fast you spin the gerbil wheel. If you have a thousand databases, it's not going to catch up with one database, right? It's just not. Um, and, and a blockchain enables you to have that one database. So I do think for a long time, I talked to people about crypto and they'd be like, oh, we already have that. We have Venmo. And I actually think it's the, the best single thing to understand what this advance is all about. And, and on that note, um, are there any other common questions that you get where um, somebody's an naysayer or they're kind of interested, but they just can't jump over it? Is there, there a common theme there that, that you have to solve for them? Yeah, yeah, there, there are a couple. Uh, I, people often ask, won't the government ban it? That's a common, that's a common question. My answer to that is, is I really don't think so. That hasn't been the history. The history of regulatory progress in crypto has been exactly that. It's been progress. I think they're creating a safe space for this to thrive. There's no history, at least in the US, of the government banning us from owning uh, a thing. In the 30s, they seized citizens' gold. People like to talk about that. But the US was on the gold standard and they literally needed physical gold to do QE. Uh, today, the Fed has proven it's very good at doing QE. It doesn't need any help. It can do it much better than anyone anticipated. So there's no analogy there. I just don't think, I think you may see despotic regimes try to ban Bitcoin. It is a sort of tool of economic freedom, but I don't think in America you're, you're, you're going to see that. Um, you know, the other thing people talk about is, is, is what we've been talking about here today. What are the real world applications? When am I going to see this in a, in a tangible, physical sense in my day-to-day -day life? And uh, you can see it a little bit with Bitcoin as digital gold serving a role in portfolio. You can see it in the physical world in edge cases like international remittance or, or monetary transfer across borders. Uh, you can start to see it in DeFi in things like trading and activity. But I think you're going to see it explode in the next five to 10 years. Again, I hate going back to this analogy, but it's so true. It's like the internet in the 90s, right? When Newsweek was saying it will never amount to anything. It's only kids that are using it, right? You can't use this for any serious thing. People are just skeptical. Uh, but ultimately, if the rails work, if it makes the world more efficient, if it allows you know, information, or in this case, money to move faster, uh, there's almost an inevitability to it, uh, to my mind. So, so I think we're close to answering that as well. Yeah, and I'll, I'll piggyback on the the banning. Um, you know, it's always a risk. Who knows what governments are going to do? Um, every, everything from that perspective is a risk. But for me, 
I didn't need to be convinced, but I was with very little doubt when the OCC came and said banks could hold digital assets this past summer. And then they turned around at the beginning of this year and said, oh, by the way, you can also forego ACH, SWIFT, and wire transfer by using stable coins if you choose. I think that solves that riddle. Why would the regulators come in and tell banks they can use a better technology and then turn around and ban it? There may be regulations that come in, but I think that sort of puts to rest. That, that to me was a fundamental thing that most of the market overlooked. I couldn't agree more. It was a huge breakthrough and, and some, for some aspect, a, a step of regulatory bravery, which is a, um, you know, it's a, it's a rare animal to see in the wild. Um, but, uh, but I do think that put it on its footing and look what happened after that, right? You've had all these investment banks, green light, people allocating to crypto. You have mass mutual an insurance company that was founded in the Millard Fillmore administration, putting $100 million of Bitcoin in its general fund. That wouldn't happen without that level of regulatory clarity. Uh, you know, we, we talked earlier about like what keeps people out of crypto. And I would say that one thing is anchoring. People's view of crypto is, you know, sort of fixed in 2013 in the Silk Road, Mt. Gox illicit activity era. And things like well, there's this OCC decision, right? Or things like, well, Fidelity custodies Bitcoin uh, helps to bring people out of that anchoring into evaluating what it is today, which is, you know, an increasingly regulated, increasingly institutional asset class with major technological implications for the world. Um, but I do think that that anchoring concept is, is something that, you know, keeps a lot of people from evaluating this market properly. That anchoring concept is a really good point and probably one where we could kind of wrap it up. Um, so if, if you anchor to some thought or some theory and you're unwilling to change, probably get left behind at some point. So I know on your site, you guys have some one-on-one -on -one resources. Is there somewhere else that uh, along with that that you point uh, advisors or individuals or institutions? I know you guys wrote a paper for the CFA uh, yeah. Where else is really good kind of 101 resources? I, yeah, I like that CFA paper a lot to self-serve. You can find it on the CFA Institute, Research Institute. Um, you know, that's a vetted publication. It's 64 page introduction to the space. I think it's a good, good first step for people. Uh, you know, other places that have great resources. Uh, you know, I think Coinbase has some great resources. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz's Crypto Canon is a great compendium of links around crypto. Uh, I think that's valuable. Uh, I'd also recommend for people who are new to this space, something I found personally valuable was reading a few books about it. Um, and not super technical books, but books that talk about the narrative of crypto. So books like Digital Gold or Bitcoin Billionaires or Out of the Ether that give you an idea of how this, from a historical perspective, how this crazy idea emerged grew into sort of an institutionally respectable uh, asset class. And, and I think that historical narrative is valuable as well. And I'll throw one in there. It's a newer one. It's really short. It's really easy, but kind of gives you a whole history. Um, Nick Fatia's Layered Money. That's mm -hmm. very good historical and sort of future concepts um, and breaks it down really simply. Well, uh, Matt, I appreciate your time today. Uh, is there, can you give the audience somewhere to find you other than uh, uh, Bitwise website? 
Yeah, I, I tweet occasionally, Matt underscore Hogan. Hogan has a U in it, so it's H-O-U-G-A-N. Uh, but that's a good place to follow me. I, I, I tweet when I have something important to say. All right, perfect. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.